burn in me. Let the fire of the Holy One burn in me. When I begin to talk about Acts chapter 2, I know, I know that there are questions that come to people's mind about what this looks like in the natural. I mean, what, because of being indwelt by the Spirit, what can we expect? Because of having the Spirit of God surround us and always influencing people around us, what can we expect? And I, I can tell you that our expectations are are sometimes very off because we read all these books that are called testimonies from the last move of God and we think that's what it's going to look like. And it could in at some points, but it won't be just like that because we're a different culture, we're different people. And the manifestation on me is different than the manifestation on Chelsea. Uh, LaRoyce was telling me some things back there and and we were, we were jumping for joy, weren't we, Lord? Neither one of us was clearing the ground, but we were doing this. That, that, that's jumping for me. <laughs> if, I get, if I clear the ground, I'm not sure my hips would lock when I came back down. He said, well, you should have faith. Maybe, but you haven't fallen as hard as I have. <laughs> but the thing is, is we've got to understand that there are, there are guidelines and principles in the Word of God of what it looks like when the power of God is on someone. So... In the first chapter of John, I don't want to go there, but I want to read what a, one of my favorite writers said about that chapter. He said, he wrote, the Word became flesh, and that's all he used out of that chapter, and then he went on with what he's seeing. He said, the Word became flesh, and the church has tried to turn the flesh back into words. <laughs> words of good advice words of comfort, words of wisdom, words of encouragement. Yes, but what changes the world is flesh, words with skin on them, words that hug you and cry with you and play with you and, and love you and rebuke you and build, build houses with you and teach your children in school. That's the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And that's kind of going to be the background and the theme of what, of what I'm preaching this morning. Uh, I'm going to talk about Peter and, and go through a sequence of Scripture with him. The first place I'm going to land for any length of time is John chapter 21. <coughs> the rest of the sequence you can find in the book of John, but I'm not going to take time to go through all that. Now, by the time that Peter got to that point where Jesus says, who do men say that I am? By that time, Peter had already settled in his mind, this is the Messiah. He saw the miracles, but not just the miracles. And one of the reasons that I say that is because if you follow all of the messianic prophecies, you'll see that the Messiah would not only do miracles, but he would cause other men to do miracles, and he would really be the miracle himself, and he had to fulfill all of that to be Messiah. 
Because there, there's always been miracles for those that follow God, and you find them in the Old Testament as well as the New. But Peter had already settled that, and that knowledge then came with some expectation. Now, let me pause right there and say that when God begins to make promises that he's going to be moving strongly in the coming weeks, first of all, we've heard those before. And we've, we've decided that we knew what it looked like and then we decide we haven't seen it. Then we pray again for a move of God and then we, we get the sense that it's going to happen. We decide what it's going to look like. It doesn't happen. We decide it's not God and we keep moving, keep moving, keep doing and all of this. And if we're not careful when God begins to move, we'll try to build something off of that those first expressions that uh, when someone gets healed someone gets delivered the, the power of God gets on somebody all of that when all of that happens if we're not careful we will decide that that's the move of God so we'll, we'll start doing services every night of, of the week and, and we'll start trying to get on the radio and get, get on TV and show the world what the move of God looks like at Christ Family Church and in that, we'll kill God's most effective tool, which is the local church. Because nobody can sustain that. Nobody can live in that. And it, we're not called to a revival ministry. And as, as much as I know what's going to come in on the backfire on this, I'm going to tell you we're not called to be a prayer ministry. We're called to be the church. So... As we look at, at this thing with Peter, that when he began to realize it, the knowledge obviously came with some expectation. Now, part of that expectation was that when the Messiah showed up, it would be a sign that God was going to reestablish Israel as the political rule of the area. And it, it really doesn't say it in, in prophecy, but they feel like it's superimposed because the Bible said that he would, that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David. And a lot of times we miss why David was appointed. David wasn't appointed because he could take the known world militarily, although he did. But that wasn't why he was appointed. In the Psalms, it's very plain why God chose David. He chose him because he was a shepherd. That David had the heart to love his people. That's why God chose him. And when it talked about the Messiah, it said the Messiah will sit on that throne. And not only did they figure that God was going to restore power to Israel, but, you know, it's natural. We've got this Messiah who it seems that he's going to be God's king because God said, I've set my king on his, on his holy hill. I've set him. I've established that. So the people around the king are going to come into power. They're going to come into authority. They're going to be somebody. And so Peter kind of, no doubt, had this in the back of his mind when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And then he turned it and said, but who do you say I am? And Peter said, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. But it came with all of that baggage. Now, when Jesus began to talk about his sufferings, what was Peter's response? you remember? Peter said, oh, no, Lord, not you. I see that you're the Messiah. I see that you're the Son of God. You see, the, sat the satanic impression always comes in the sense of, has God really said? 
And Jesus was saying, I'm going to go through this stuff. And in, in effect, Peter was saying, God didn't say that for you because I've seen that you're the Messiah. Those prophecies of your suffering don't apply to you. I'm told that Isaiah 53 was largely uh, untaught in the Hebrew schools. Why? Because it showed a suffering Messiah. And they would rather look at it a different way. And, and so you, you can see how, how Peter was affected by, by what he thought. And Jesus, what did he say to Peter? He said, you're acting like Satan. Get behind me. Huh. Now, let's go on from that and go into the court of Caiaphas as, as Jesus was taken. He'd been in the upper room. There's much we could say about that. We won't. They took him, and uh, Peter, he was the man. When, when they came to take Jesus, he still tried to stop it. He jumped off and cut the guy's ear off with a sword. Still Peter. I, I can identify with Peter. I, I, know that, I know that feeling of they're not going to do that to me. They're not going to do that to us, and, and on and on it goes. But now Jesus is there in the court of the high priest. And understand the backdrop here. As, as fancy as people of that generation were able to make it, that's what the temple looked like. It was, it was that court where the high priest received people into audience. The seating behind him or the setting behind him would have been that holy place where only the priests can go in and where, where the fire of heaven had been known to fall and on and on. Peter was looking at Jesus with that backdrop. He was seeing all of the pomp and circumstance of religion. And here's this poor guy from Galilee and by this time, he's, he's got all kinds of problems with, with his appearance because they haven't handled him easily. They've handled him roughly. And as Peter looks at him and they said, weren't you with him? And first of all, Peter lied. He said, no, I wasn't with him. But then he said something that I believe has more depth than we give it credit for. But he said, I didn't know him. I thought I knew him. I thought that I saw on him what was to happen. But now, here he is with all of, all of the Roman army standing waiting for him to be sent to Pilate. you got the, the religious world standing here, and they're saying, crucify him. He's, he's causing sedition. It's seditious behavior, and, and on and on. And Peter looks at that, and he said, I, just, I, didn't, I didn't know him. I thought I saw in him one that when this happened that he would rise up and he would conquer all, that the angels would support him. But he's submitting to this. I didn't know him. And I would say that a lot of times as we walk with God, we will enter into places in difficult times, extremely difficult times, and we'll realize I knew all the Scripture. <laughs> I knew the history. I know the doctrine, but I don't know him because he's letting me go through some things that I never thought I'd have to go through as a born-again believer. He's allowing some things to happen in my life that, that I never thought would happen in the life of a Christian. I, I really didn't know him. Now, let's go to John 21, and I'm just going to kind of skip through and hit some highlights, and I think the guys are going to be trying to follow me back here, but... I don't really want to take time to read it all. 
But it talks about Jesus manifesting himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Understand that he had already appeared in the upper room or in whatever room they were in. And the way he appeared, I, I'd like to see it, but I can only imagine what my heart would do if I saw it. Hey, he just walked through the wall. They were locked in and he just walked through the wall. And he talked with them. I, I'm sure they were properly impressed. But he talked with them and, and began to talk to them about what they should do and some of the things according to prophecy. But, but uh, Thomas wasn't there. And when they told Thomas, Thomas, we saw him. And Thomas, you know, he, he's like I am a lot of times. He's, he's saying, well, we'll see. I doubt that you saw him. I think it's probably a product of your imagination. And so Jesus just appeared to Thomas. And when he, when he appeared to Thomas, he told Thomas, you know, and, and this is not, this is my uh, thinking of how it must have gone because they didn't record every little thing. But he's, Thomas, you, you didn't believe that I was real. And Thomas, here, touch. Now, hey, this, is, this is the truth. He said, Thomas, touch me. Thrust your hand in my side. I'm showing you that I'm just as real, if not more real than you are, but at the same time, I just walked through the wall. A level of spiritual uh, attention that we're not really quite ready to handle. So I can see that when it says here that in verse 2 of chapter 21, it says, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, which is the doubter, uh, and Nathaniel, Cain of Galilee. There's seven of them gathered there. And Simon Peter looked at all of them, and what did he say? I'm going fishing. <laughs> now, I think we can understand that too, and I think that my understanding of this comes from having walked with God a long time. I think these guys by this time had accepted that their Lord was risen. That their faith was no longer in the tomb, but it was alive and well, and the object of their faith was before them. And he had already talked to them some about what they were to do. And it had gotten so heavy in their minds that Peter, being a fisherman, was, was like me sometimes. Well, I just need to go fishing. I just need to sit there and watch that line and, and just know that the next time it flicks is going to be the big one and not think of anything else and try to clear my consciousness. I just need to go fishing. So I don't think there's any great sin on their part, but they went out and they fished all night. The other guys, by the way, the other six said, oh, we're going with you. If you're going fishing, we're going too. And they were out there and they fished all night. And then verse 5, when they, they didn't know it was Jesus, but this guy on the shore said, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? Nope. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. Now, can you imagine what went through Peter's mind? Now, Peter's a strong-minded guy. He's very opinionated. Again, I identify with him. And I can, although it doesn't say he said it, I can just imagine what he's thinking. Yeah, we've fished all night. We're the fishermen here. <laughs> we've done this for years. We know about it, but... We'll keep things good, and they toss them out, and they get more fish than they can drag in the boat. Somebody takes another look and says, that's the Lord on the shore. 
And when Peter knew that, some people tell you that he jumped naked into the sea. No, he didn't. He was naked before he saw Jesus. And he put his coat on and jumped into the sea. And Jesus helped pull him in. And he began to feed the disciples. Where did his fish come from? I don't know. He might have walked out in the, in the waves and caught them and tossed them. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to try to preach doctrine about him doing all kinds of things that I don't know if he did them or not. But I know that he's having a profound effect on him because they were calling him in that time, Lord. I'm referring back to Doug's message now. The first thing they recognized was he's Lord. And that word Lord, when you take it over into the Old Testament as it's applied, it, was, it would have been applied to Adonai, which if you read it through, it comes down to being the God who always meets you in the midst of your battles. Lord. You're Lord of my life. And so Peter stood there and they began to, to eat. And when they began to eat, they sat around and they'd done what they usually do. But then when they had finished, I'm already down to verse 15 in, in the way I'm looking at this. When they finished, something happened that Peter had been expecting but not necessarily wanting to happen. But Peter knew that he had denied Christ and that he had lied. He knew that he did it at Jesus' most difficult moment. He knew that he had been so confused after he seen him that he had told the rest of the guys, I'm going fishing. I've got to sort this out. So he wasn't looking for a walk along the beach with Jesus. Now, how do I know they walked along the beach? Because it says that the disciple that Jesus loved followed after them. Now, this is not an aside. I want you to get this. Go through the Gospels sometime and look for relationship, and you'll find it. These guys had deep relationship. John, a powerful, powerful writer, had some of the most powerful experiences with the risen Savior that anybody had in, in the book of Revelation. And then he talks about it again in his gospel. But John, not above letting them know who he thought he was, he said, I'm the guy that Jesus loves. <laughs> Why? He, he was close to Jesus. He was, he was a part of the three that was with him all the time. And the rest of them were there, but they, they didn't have the guts to set up close to him and, and get really into his, into his mind and into his heart. And John, he didn't care about that. He said, you know, I'm the guy that Jesus loves. He didn't mind mentioning that when everybody else ran away, that he didn't run away. And he went down because he knew somebody, and he got in, and got in, and he watched the whole thing. He didn't mind letting us know that although the rest of them stood back and weren't mentioned at the cross, that he was at the cross. He didn't mind letting them know that when he was there and Jesus was concerned for his mother, that he spoke to him and said, this is your mother now, I want you to take care of her. He didn't mind letting them know. He also didn't mind when they had given him, given them the, the word of the resurrection that they all took off for the tomb and they run off and left the old guys. John got there first and, and you know, Peter was lagging behind. But I was there first. I looked in. I saw those angels. I saw the empty tomb. See the relationship that these guys had because that's the way guys deal with each other. Yeah, you're old and slow. I beat you. 
You know, they, they had sat around campfires and they, they had walked the roads together. They knew each other. They probably gave each other problems about one of them asking to be at the right or left hand of Jesus. All these things, these guys had relationship. Why is that important? Because if we're ever going to demonstrate who God is in this earth, it's going to be through our relationship. Jesus said it himself, you love one for another. And that's, folks, that's the best thing we have going for us in this house is we love each other. And we hang out with each other. Is there ever arguments? Yeah, you probably don't know about them, but yeah, there's arguments. And sometimes we have to do like the guys had to do with Doug, step in between sometimes and make sure that it doesn't come to blows. But the thing is, we love each other. And it's a family type love. And that's what God is doing on the earth. He's building family. I want to I read something to you that I ran across this morning. I, yeah, I got it on my phone, but Chelsea, help me. <laughs> if I can find it. She might have to help me with that, too. But this is one of the theologians of our time, and here's what he says. Stanley Hauerwas, he says... The most interesting, creative, and political solution we Christians have to offer our troubled society is the church. Here we show the world a manner of life the world can never achieve through social coercion or governmental action. We serve the world by showing it something that is not namely a place where God is, but a place where God is forming a family out of strangers. That's what we have to offer the world, giving, giving the world hope that they can have the relationship they need to make it in flesh. The Word becoming flesh. Now, as Jesus and Peter walk down through there, I want to get back to that, walking along the shore, and you would expect, or probably Peter was expecting that Jesus was going to take him to the woodshed. But you, you notice it didn't happen. They just, they just walked along, and, and uh, let me find it here. When they had finished eating, Jesus began to speak with Peter. Jesus said to him, Simon, do you love me more than these? Now, the reason I know that he said, come on, Peter, let's go for a walk, is because the disciple that Jesus loved was falling along behind him. And Peter wanted to divert it. He, he wanted to say, well, what you're, you're asking this of me. What about this guy? And you know, in my old Oklahoma English, Jesus said something to the effect of, Peter, that's not your business how I work with him. What's your business is how I work with you. <laughs> my goodness, if we could just take that to heart. A lot of times we think we want a position that someone else has. And Jesus is saying, that's not your business. It's not your business to want it, not your business to get it. Your business is to keep moving as I've asked you to move. But Simon, son of John, in other words, before he had talked about Peter having the revelation of God, now he's bringing it right back. You're an earthly man, Simon. Do you love me more than these? And Jesus was using the word there, agapeo or agape, whichever one it might happen to be. It's still the same kind of thing. And basically what he's saying, the root of agape is this, that you would choose Jesus above anything else and do what's right for him. That's the kind of love that agape is. 
And he's saying, Peter, would, would you just do anything for me? Now, Peter had just proven he wouldn't. And he knew it. And Jesus knew it. But Jesus was getting his attention here. But notice how Peter answered him. He said, yes, Lord, you know that I not agape you, but that I phileo you. You know that I have a deep friendship with you. You know that I care for you. You know that, you know, Jesus, you know this thing. And Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Now, the word tend is interesting because it doesn't, it doesn't mean exactly what we would think of in English, but it means that I'm asking you to live in a particular way so that the young ones in my kingdom can be okay. And the reason you live that way is so they can be okay, not so you can be okay. I'm asking you to live in a way. Church, we've got to hear this, that if we're going to go on and see God move in the way that He wants to move, we've got to learn to live in a particular way. Not according to a lot of rules, but a way that always leans toward Him. That the world can look at us and know that we're different. Not that we dress different, except that we probably expose a lot less flesh than the world does. Not, not that we talk different, except we probably use a lot less foul language than the world does most of the time. Not, not those things, but that we live differently. That I live my life so that the young ones in the kingdom can be okay. And that's what he's saying to Peter. He said, Peter, I want you to live in a way that these lambs, these young ones, can be okay. And then he said it to him again. Now, do you agape me? And Peter said it again. Then you know, you know that I phileo you. You know that I'm your friend. And so Jesus gives him more. He said, he said I want you to shepherd my sheep, those that are grown up in the house, those, those that are maturing. I want you to guide them. I want you to live your life in such a way that you can guide them, that you can guard them, that you can nourish them. And I want your life to demonstrate this, Peter. And he's talking to a man that had denied him just a few days before. A man that wasn't certain what to do with the new instructions that were coming down. But a man that was willing to jump out of the boat and swim to shore just to be with him and see what he had to say. Now, are you getting this? A man that would be with him even when it's uncomfortable. A man that would not betray him completely. But even though he knew he had some rebuke coming, he'd still go to him and submit himself to the Lord. And as Peter continued to talk to him, said that Peter was grieved, verse 17, Peter was grieved because Jesus asked him the third time. Now back, you can find it in Luke, and you can find it in a, one, at least one other place in the, in the Gospels where Jesus had told his disciples, I want you to go and I want you to tarry in Jerusalem until I come, or tarry in the city. And then over in Acts, he says Jerusalem. But look at Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through eight. And I want to go through this verse by verse. Jesus said, I want you to gather in Jerusalem. Now, one of the things that's significant to me as I ponder the life of Peter is with all of this difficulty, that when Jesus said, I want you to do a certain thing, I want you to go and wait. In all of his 
impetuous nature and, and all of his tendency to, to have an opinion and all of his tendency to argue on this, he went to Jerusalem and began to wait like the others. Why? Because he was so aware of his own deficit to even be a friend to Jesus unless he got that promise that was from the Father. Now, many people would say there's no difference between the experience coming up in Acts chapter 2 and the experience of the disciples. There's definitely a difference. It's in the Word. And your argument won't be with me. It'll be with the Word. In, in the Gospels, it said that Jesus breathed on His disciples and told them, receive the Holy Spirit. Told these same disciples, you go and you wait until the promise of the Father comes on you. These same disciples were in the upper room when there was a sound from heaven. The, he the echo of heaven's own noise. The fire of Almighty God broke out on them. Those same disciples that He breathed on received a completely different and empowering experience. There again, if, if you want to argue that, that's fine. I don't really have time to because I won't argue against what the book says. So, Peter was willing to come out of this place of uncertainty, this place where he didn't feel so comfortable and go and wait. Verse 4, it says, Jesus gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John immersed you in water. John did that. John immersed you in water. But the Holy Spirit is going to baptize you into God, into the presence, into the, into the glory, into the Spirit, not many days from now. Understand that he was liking it to, to something that was so... Uh, complete, so enveloping as to be buried in water and, and realize that you're leaving a dead person behind when you come up. You're coming up into a new life. That same kind of experience is going to be available in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to baptize you. And these disciples were listening because the promise is that the power would come. The promise is that there would be something that would help them. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Can you imagine how Jesus felt about that? He's been teaching, he's been talking, he's been telling them, he's, been, he's said to them over and over again things that, that should redirect them. Every time they've asked, he's directed them to the Spirit, and now he's getting ready to be taken away from them, at least physically. And they're saying, oh, we're going to wait, and, and that's when you're going to do this. That's when you're going to restore it to Israel. That's when we're going to have influence. That's when we're going to be the guys sitting around the king. I can only imagine, of course, by this time, no, we don't, I, that, that would be just something else, so let's leave that alone. <laughs> and he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs, King James says the times or the season, which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Now, we need to get this, folks. There is a whole 
kind of parachurch thing that sits out there that continuously deals with the times and the seasons of the end and they have been consistently wrong for hundreds of years. And I would submit to you that they're still wrong. That you won't know, it's not, it, not only you won't know, but it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That, that's a phraseology that would have been used for Jesus to say that the times is chronos, the clock. Seasons or epochs is kairos, that time when eternity for once and for all steps into time. He said, it's not for you to know when this will happen. That God is with us. He, he holds time in his hand and, and he has determined at points of time where he will step in and cause eternity to come into time and he'll cause things to happen. And then it'll go on for a while and he'll do it again and again. But there will come a time when time will be no more. But we'll be in eternity. But that's not for me to know. Hey, well, what would happen if I really knew? If I really knew what would happen, I don't think I would be able to keep from just declaring it far and wide. And you know, some people would be like me, like I was when I was young. I remember when this guy came and he had charts all across the front of the church. I was about nine, ten years old. And I followed that chart for a while, and I, I began to watch what he was doing, and, and they began to tell, tell us that the seven years have been lost in the, in the Jewish, or in our calendar, seven years have been lost, so that means that the Jewish calendar is seven to nine years ahead of ours, and they began to do the whole thing. Now, I'm a calculating teenager, or almost teenager, as unsaved as they come, so I'm calculating. He's given us times. Now, I can, if I put that seven years in, and if I, if I work like this, I can get by and live like I want to. And I was thinking like this. I can live like I want to until I'm 21, and then I can just slide under the wire and go to heaven. You say, people don't think like that. Yeah, some people do. They're that warped. I was that warped. I, was think, I wasn't thinking, I want God. I was thinking, I don't want to burn. And so I began to do just that. And guess what? Sin will cost you more, keep you longer, and destroy more in your life than you ever intended. I would have missed it by about two years if that timeline had been right because I couldn't get out of what I got into without God. So if he gave the times and the seasons into our minds, some of us would get wealthy writing books with so much, uh, so much conviction. Some of us would get popular by having services that went on and 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 on. The first on and on is where I usually look at Chelsea and say, want to go somewhere and have some fun. But he said, that's not in your hands. He said, what's in your hands is that you can go and you can wait. The Father has fixed by his own authority those things that will happen. 
But if you do what I tell you to do, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. He was telling them, if you'll just settle that stuff in your mind and realize that's not the focus. And if you'll go and wait until the promise of the Father has come upon you, then, here again, I, I've got to deal with some twisted stuff. He said, you'll be my witnesses. Now, we've made witness to mean that I go and I shove salvation down your throat until I get you to say a prayer. And then, wow, got a testimony. I got Brandy to pray the prayer of salvation last week. Now, Brandy, this is not you, but just use you for example. Did Brandy's life change? No. Why? Because I missed what it means. What it means, it's the same word that's used that they get martyred from, that when, you, when this power comes on you, you'll be able to lay down your own life and live instead the life of your Savior. And if you'll do that, then you will begin to build a bridge into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I would be able to build a bridge to Brandy where she would see something in my life that she wanted and would begin to ask questions. And I would begin to be able to lead her to where I found life. Would she pray that prayer? I don't know. Because that prayer is really not recorded. <laughs> hmm. Folks, there's a few things we need to change. That's one of them. But when the Holy Ghost comes on you, you receive something on the inside of you that changes who you are from the inside and it begins to work out. And things begin to change and things begin to happen. And it says that the power, and that power is, is dunamis. It's some variation of dunamis anyway. That power, when it comes on you, it's going to be more than just a power. It's going to be something that's so much a part of you that when you're just hanging out with somebody, you're powerful. Amen. When you're just making, when you're cutting someone's hair, you're powerful. I was talking to someone just a couple of days ago and, and making a commitment to try, to try to get with them from time to time. And I said, I'm just dumb enough to think that just hanging out with you is going to change something for you. You're not being able to see it right now. But if I can just, if I can just get with you, there's something in me that will touch something in you. And we might talk about it and we might not because it's not necessary for me to talk all the time. Sometimes God will say something and tell me to say it, and I'll say it and see an amazing thing happen. But sometimes he'll tell me something, and I say it when he didn't say anything, and I'm standing there confused because nothing happened. But when they walked along that seashore, Jesus was really telling Peter, said, Peter, I want you to become flesh to people. I want you to be the kind of flesh that walks along the seashore with them and that the Word is still becoming flesh and dwelling among them. I want you to live a life where people can see you change, where they can see things happen. And when Peter was touched in that upper room, when he came down, he preached a message, just a simple, less than 15-minute message. Imagine that. I need to get anointed, don't I? Less than 15 minutes, and 3,000 people were asking, what can we do? How do we get saved? How do we get this change? 
And then Peter went on, and Peter continued to have difficulties. He was still human, but he was still affected by God, the Word becoming flesh. Major argument with, with the doctrine that Paul preached. Even arguing with God when, when God showed him these animals and said, Rise up, Peter, kill and eat. Peter, what did he say? You're wrong on that one. We've, we've learned from the time we were children that those animals are unclean. What did God say? Peter, what I've cleaned, don't let any man call unclean. You do what I tell you to do. You operate in this realm, in this way, now, not in that one. And oh, that's a message to the church. I can't operate in what Azusa Street operated in. I can't operate in what happened in, in the uh, latter rain revivals that happened in the 50s. I can't operate in that great praise and worship thing that happened in the 70s. I can't operate in what happened in, in Brownsville, Florida. I can't operate in what happened in Toronto, Canada. I can't operate in that, but I can operate in what's happening here because the power of God is on us. If I try to operate in any of those other things, I'll be offering God something that's not real, something that won't change my world, and it won't change anybody else's world either. But as we go along walking with Him and talking with Him, we just got to know that as we change, the world around us begins to respond to us more and more. And a lot of times you'll be confused. I mean it. Sometimes... I, I didn't have any intention of being in, in a, uh, in a God, God encounter. I just had sat down and started talking with somebody, and all of a sudden I, I hear somebody sob, and I'm looking at them thinking, what in the world are you crying about? And all of a sudden God begins to come over me, and I begin to push what I'm saying and watch that person just come apart and break down, and I realize that the Word is still becoming flesh. And it's still dwelling among men, and it's still full of grace and truth. And that's a God moment. I can, I can choose to pet that person and say, oh, it's going to be all right. Or I can go ahead and say what God wants to say and then leave it alone. Because God's already got in there, and He's already doing something. He don't need me in it too. Other times I can think, well, this is going to be a God moment. And I'll start saying things I think I know to say and doing things I think I know to do and have absolutely no response whatsoever. Why? Because it's still flesh and blood. And I still need to walk every day and hear what God has to say. I need to get up every morning and become aware that there's a full-grown God that lives inside of me. I don't, I don't have the fullness of Him, but I have the capability of, of uh, experiencing the fullness of Him. I wish I had it to show you, but you just think in your mind, if, if I have a pitcher here that is empty and I have a bigger pitcher and I begin to pour water in it, now, if I quit when that pitcher's full, it'll never experience all of the water that's in this pitcher. But if I just let it run over and run over and run over and run over, then this pitcher will experience. It can't hold it, but it'll experience all that's in this pitcher. And I'm telling you that God's pitcher, His, His ability to pour is bigger than you. But if you'll just stay open to Him, He will pour and pour and pour and pour. You won't be able to contain it all. It'll spread around you and touch other people. But He'll pour and pour and pour and pour until you have experienced all the fullness of Him. But you can't hold it. You've got to let it go. You've got to let it touch other people. Folks, I'm telling you that God wants to step on our train. 
I heard Dave Lemmer talking about this the other day, and I'd never heard this illustration. I like it. He said, life is like a train, train track. It's got a beginning, and it's got an end, and that train is somewhere on the track. He said, God's not on that track. God is standing in that dimension off to the side, and he steps in wherever he wants to. If he needs to take you back and get something healed in your past, he'll take your train and move it there and heal it up and then send it on its way. If he needs to meet you somewhere, he'll meet you right where you are. If he needs to be out there and prepare something for you to go to, he'll be out there and prepare it. God's not in your life completely, but you can experience the completeness of God in your life if you just let him step in and do his stuff. As we walk with God, it's going to seem very natural most times until all of a sudden you're minding your own business and then God gives you some little something to say and somebody in front of you just breaks down. And then, I don't know about you, you're probably, more, you're probably better at this than I am, but when they break down, I'm sitting there saying, now what do I do? I'm sitting here at high V, and this person sitting across from me bawling like a baby and people are wondering what I've done to this person. That's, that's how full of faith I am. <laughs> but then I'll get it. I'll begin to realize, hey, God's in this thing. And begin to just listen and, and stay, stay open on that level and let him begin to speak and let him begin to touch us. Let him begin to move us. Folks, I'm telling you that God wants to use you. He don't have to. It's, your, your obedience is not going to cause heaven to to come today or it's not going to cause it not to come tomorrow. But God will let you experience Him and He'll let you experience victory. I'm going to use an Old Testament, Old Testament illustration to close this. Remember the life of Samson? That this lion roared up against him and the Spirit of God came on him and he tore that lion. Remember that? That's always impressed me. You say, oh, that's just an illustration. No. Seems to me like it's what happened. And if it's not, don't bother me. I enjoy believing it. But a few years later, Samson coming back through the same area and he remembers that. And he goes over and looks and the bees have set up a whatever they set up, a nest in their hive in there and there's honey. That carcass is full of honey. And I get this picture of salmon. It says that he took from it and ate. I can see him grabbing that and that honey running down, dripping off his elbows and on his beard and his chin. He's enjoying that past victory, the sweetness of it. Every one of you at some level have had a past victory, even if it's just victory over your previous life. Sometimes just go back there and enjoy the sweetness of that. The sweetness of that victory. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Sometimes I just go back in my mind to some of the healings that I've seen that's happened instantaneously. And what I'm trying to do is build up my, my response to a healing that's not happening so quickly and to realize that God's a healer. And if He healed that time, He's, he's never different. He's, a, he's the healer. So if He healed here, and He wants to heal here, so I'm saying, oh God, step on this train right here. And let's see this thing happen. I stood there in that hospital room yesterday listening to Paul Washington Jr. as he began to talk about things that God had talked to him about, but he had chosen to live his own life instead. 
And he told me several times, he said, I know why I'm here. Because God allowed this to happen so I could get settled down and I could hear him. And I could begin to live differently. Folks, God doesn't make these things happen, but he looks at it and he knows it's going to happen. And so when it does happen, he's ready to talk to you because now he's got your attention. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can live your life getting up in the morning, realizing that you're full of the presence of God and then talking to him, God, what are we going to do today? Sometimes he'll lay out a day for you. Other times he just doesn't say much, but you just become aware of him. And then through the day, he leads you and guides you. For me, one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to get a cup of coffee. You say, God's not in that? Oh, yes, he is. Because he don't like to talk to me until I've got a cup of coffee in my hand. <laughs> Seriously, I don't think he minds at all. If I did, I wouldn't drink it. But the thing is that God's going to go about your natural day while you're doing natural things. And if you let him, he'll step on your train from time to time. And you'll see the hand of God at work just staying aware. But get this. You don't have to fix anybody. Not only you don't have to, but you can't. I can't fix, I, as much as I'd like to, I can't fix Trent's legs. But God can, Trent. He can do it much better than I can. Trent, are you 40 yet? No. You know that guy at Gate, that guy at Gate Beautiful was 40 years old when the power of God hit him. And he hadn't walked for 40 years. He jumped up and started leaping and jumping because the power of God touched him. I can't do that, but God can. I couldn't save me. I, I tried to get myself straightened out where I could offer myself to God, and I was a miserable failure at getting me straightened out. I managed to quit drinking, and I just became a dry drunk. Hard to get along with, meaner than a snake. I needed deliverance. <laughs> I remember so many things that God delivered me from, but He did it. I couldn't do it. Yes, I'm that weak. Maybe you're stronger than that, but it, it'll work against you if you try to be. Because once you realize that God will empower you to live godly, and that He's given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. That new birth in you is everything that pertains to life and godliness. If you'll just remember that, you'll change your world. Because God will work through you. He'll touch you. He'll deliver you. Hallelujah. This is one of those things where I think I'm supposed to leave this with you rather than, rather than asking for people to come forward. Here's what I'll do. I am going to leave it with you, but I'll hang around up here for a while, and if you want direct prayer, I'd be glad to do it. So God bless you. Thank you for coming. And God, I ask you to cause them to not be able to get away from this message. Help them to realize that in their life, in their life, God, the Word is becoming flesh, and it dwells, it thrives in grace and truth. Help us, God. Go with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Burn in me. Burn in me. Let the fire of the Holy One burn in me. Burn in me Burn in 
Perfecto. 